is Our American Stories, and we love to cover our favorite shows. And two of them are, well, they're not necessarily new. Judge Judy's been out there forever. But we still cover it for you because it's one of the most entertaining hours on television. We get it for an hour here in Oxford, Mississippi. I don't know about you or you are, but most of the country gets it an hour. And then there's Shark Tank, which is running, it seems, never-endingly so on CNBC at night and is the number one rated show on Fridays. It's been Friday nights. It's been around four or five years, and it's terrific, and it just keeps getting better. And we cover a pitch a week when we can. And this past week, Phil and David pitched their product, Physics their patent-pending invention that enhances the flavor of any beer. Here's the pitch. Hi, Sharks. I'm Phil Petraka. And I'm David McDonald. We are the founders of Physics from Newark, New Jersey. We're seeking a $500,000 investment for 4% equity in our company. Wow. Physics is changing the way people are drinking beer at home and on the go. Beer is pretty awesome. And we all know that beer tastes best fresh from the tap. After all, that's how the brewers intended their beers to taste. But in order to reach the masses, beer is sold in cans and bottles worldwide. And unfortunately for us beer lovers, it just doesn't taste as good as it does fresh from the tap. But drab beer is a thing of the past with physics. The world's first and only portable draft beer system that delivers an awesome, better than tap, experience from any can or bottle. Simply place any size can or any size bottle, oh, you put even up to a 64-ounce growler into the system and insert the feed tube. Pull the tap handle forward and the system will begin to pour the beer under pressure at a controlled rate with no gas, no chemicals, and no replaceable cartridges. And then when you push the handle in the backwards position, behold the magic of science. I'm excited and I don't drink beer. Here's how it works. Utilizing sound waves, we perfect the density, stability, and texture of the foam, enhancing the aroma and flavor of an authentic draft beer. Wow! (laughs) Here's what the Sharks had to say after a side-by-side comparison of regular beer from a can versus beer that had gone through the physics device. Oh, definitely smoother, definitely better. Like night and night. Oh, that's a good beer. Oh, that is good. Isn't that good? And that's from a can. This is good. That's from a can. The foam is really good. The foam is the most critical element of the beer drinking experience. Can I get a share of hands, sharks? Who feels that the physics is better than the other one? I would say this definitely advances. Night and day. Night and day. They're like two different beers. We always say tasting is believing. Believe me, I was very skeptical when I saw this. Yeah, me too. Mr. Wonderful might be on board with the product, but it's the valuation that's another story. Now... I've looked at the valuation and I say, are you guys out of your friggin' minds? Well, Kevin, we just started shipping product eight oh. months ago, oh. and we've done $3.2 million in sales. Wow. Okay. Not bad, not bad. You just started shipping. How, How much does you? that cost? This retails for $199. And Phil. what does it cost you to make? $35.88. Oh, wow, good for you. Wow, good market. Really? Phil. Yeah. Really? You bet. Robert. Well, he's ready for an offer. I'll give you the 500000 for 8%. Robert, thank you so much for your offer. We believe it's way below market. This is part of our Series A round. Wow, Series A round. <laughs> Mr. Wonderful? I will give you the same offer, 500000 for 8%. I like this deal a lot. I can move a lot of units, a lot. And here, Barbara Corcoran tells it like she sees it. I'm wildly enthusiastic about the product, but I'm not wildly enthusiastic about you. 
I feel like you're too slick. You have every answer. And my gut is ringing. There's got to be something wrong. You're too slick for me. I don't trust you, so I'm out. That's got to burn. Just somebody says, I just don't like you. Exactly right. It's not your business. It's not your plan. It's not your product. She's honest. Yeah, yeah it is. And by the way, it's not that you have all the right answers. Yeah. Because that's what she basically said. <laughs> well, sometimes you just don't like someone for whatever reason. Here's the reason that Damon drops out. The main reason that I started to do this show and love this program is all the people that really need help. You don't need any money. You're cash flow positive. Why are you here? Well, we need to scale. There are some retailers that we want to go into that we currently can't because we have channel conflict. So what Give I want to show what I want to show you all is, is what we're anticipating, what we're investing in. You didn't even get to your slides yet. This is our <laughs> this is our next generation product. No, Phil, Phil, I'm I'm just gonna let everybody wait, wait, help. Wait, Phil, I Phil, Phil, so Phil, 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 yes, I'm sir. out. Okay. Why did you do that? Wow, Lori, what about you? The great thing for you is I have QVC and TV sales because you need to get out there education. You need people to know what it is. So it's Absolutely. free advertising. So I am also going to give you 500000 for 8%. 8% by three offers, same offer, three different sharks. Things start to move fast when Mark Cuban throws in his offer. And wait for some man crying at the end of this clip. <laughs> some man crying. I want to make an offer. And I'll even open up to Lori to come in on my offer. So I'll offer you $800,000 for 10%. That valuation is higher than the 500 for 8%. But it gives you more cash so you can go to work faster and you have either one or two sharks. I would like to make a counter to Mark and Laura. I like the deal. All right? I think we'd be great partners. This is our Series A round. If you want to take the whole Series A, we're looking to raise $2 million yeah, at a right. $10 million pre-money valuation. So that's 16%? Yes, 16.67. Well, I want to compete. Okay, I'll do that deal. Done. Oh Damn. my god. It's really it here, it's baby. really Put it fabulous. Up here. I am not a beer drinker and you are uh, you now, just baby. Me. Yeah. I am you now. Are now. <laughs> yeah. yeah! We did it. We risked it all. Left great jobs. This is the American dream. I'm just so full of emotion right now. It's awesome. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> it's okay, man. There's no crying on Shark Tank. <laughs> Oh, the whole that's the first time ever that the entire Series A round, when thrown out there, yeah. was covered by the Sharks. Jesse, so. what do you think? Would you give this a shot? You're the beer drinker in the house. Absolutely. Shake up my beer, make it a little more foamy. <laughs> Why not? What the heck? Right. <laughs> this is Lee Habib, Shark Tank. We love it because it's everything we love about America. A bunch of folks trying to get ahead and some one percenters trying to help some youngsters and some old timers get ahead themselves. This is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. 
And as often as possible, we like to have Jesse do his version of the news. And today's subject and through line is cats. Pop singer Miley Cyrus is nursing her wounds after she was injured by a vicious cat. Miley shared a photo of her forehead injuries with fans on Instagram, adding a caption of expletives. Cyrus shared two other pictures, including a close-up image of her bloodied scalp and a picture of a deep, long laceration on her tattooed forearm. The former Hannah Montana actor has been an animal advocate for many years, and she recently backed a campaign to end the hunting of lions in South Africa. Got rats? Hundreds of cats are being hired and put to work in local homes and businesses in Chicago. There's a waiting list for the cats, and a lot of the people that are on that list live near the soon-to-be-demolished buildings like the Children's Memorial Hospital in Lincoln Park. When the building comes down, the rat problem is expected to get worse. The street cats were scheduled to be euthanized, but then rescued from animal shelters and sent into places like businesses, factories, and homes to kill the rats. All right, meow, where were we? I'm sorry, are you saying meow? Am I saying meow? A woman in California has transformed her 4,000-square-foot home into what's believed to be the largest no-cage cat sanctuary and adoption center in the United States. If I didn't have to deal with all the humans and, and the drama in life, I would be just perfectly content just taking care of cats. An estimated 24,000 cats have been saved by the sanctuary, which houses up to 1,000 cats at any given time. 67-year-old Laine Latanzio set up the cat house in 1992 after finding out that many nearby shelters euthanized the cats who aren't adopted. It just kept growing. Uh, I figured as long as I could take care of them and I had room, then I was doing a good thing. As more and more feral and abandoned cats took up residence in her home, she moved out of the main house and into a trailer on her 12-acre property. Latanzio spent her entire retirement fund on the pet project, which also relies on donations. I, I, I thought you... Don't think, boy, man. Do you know how fast you were going? She meow has a staff and a team of volunteers to help keep the house clean and the about 800 cats and 300 kittens fed. The sanctuary also employs veterinarians who keep the cats healthy and spayed or neutered. The cats eat about 1,000 cans of cat food every week. Oh, my goodness. For our American... Ow! I'm Jesse Edwards. Now, what is so damn funny? Oh. I can swear you said meow. <laughs> Great job on that, Jesse. Great job on that. And we hit every kind of subject here on Our American Stories. Uh, we covered Justice Scalia's funeral. And we're going to cover Merle Haggard. And right now, we want to hit cuddling. Because, well, we read a story in the Wall Street Journal, need a cuddle, hire a pro. And so we would track down a cuddler because we wanted to know what is this business. And, well, where do you start? And Kira Cuddles joins us now. Kira, thanks for joining us. Kira, uh, tell hello? Me, hello, Kira. How are you? Thanks for joining us. Hi. Hey, tell us this, Kira. You're you're, you're a professional cuddler. Um, tell me what that tell me what that entails. Like you, you know, this has been a fascination for us for a couple of months since we read the article. And what led you to that? And what are your customers like? Talk a little bit about this this space called the cuddling industry or the nascent cuddling industry. Talk about that. So um, what led me to it was that I had 
a lot of friends who messaged me and told me that I should apply for this amazing job as a cuddler because within my community of people, I already was very affectionate. And so um, uh, I applied to the job, and I contacted Sam, the woman who created it, about a year before it all actually came to fruition, and me and her played tag on Facebook for a long time, and then um, she interviewed, or she had over 900 applications, and then it went down to five people, and she had to decide on two people. And so um, at that, by then, I was going to get a master's in nutrition, and I didn't think that I was going to be able to devote my time and energy to it and thought, oh, no, should, um, should I bail? And I thought, no, it'll all work out. Well, it and did. So it then, did. Yeah, and then it worked out, and she chose three of us instead, and hourly-wise, it all worked out. That's fantastic. And the, and the clientele that we get is... Um, are people who are depressed, um, autistic, cerebral palsy, um, have been physically abused in the past, or have a partner who hit menopause and doesn't want to be touched anymore, mm-hmm. or you name it. There's a wide array of people that come to us for different reasons, and they come and we just hold space for them and we present them with non-judgment and really allow them to feel safe and secure, kind of like when you're a kid and you want to be an astronaut and no adult around you says, no, you can't be an astronaut. Everybody says, yeah, you can be an astronaut. You can be whatever you want. And that's what we're there for is we just let people be whoever they are and don't tell them that they should be or shouldn't be something or someone and just let them process through what they're do what they're dealing with and so a lot of it is talk therapy as well because the moment you are um in somebody's arms the oxytocin starts flowing and so you become comfortable with them and so it's a, i mean it's touch therapy and yeah. so um we get i guess People, I would say people would open up to us differently than they would just a typical psychiatrist or yeah. therapist, yeah, you know, I, because I think that, that makes oxytocin sense. is flowing. That makes sense. Tell me yeah. this, uh, you know, first, two quick questions and you know, try We got about three minutes left together. Uh, do you have more male customers or female customers and the cuddlers themselves? Are there more male cuddlers? That is the people who are hired or female cuddlers. Talk about both sides, if you could. We have more male um, clients. Um, we do have, uh, I don't know, maybe 20% female clients. And then for the cuddlers that we currently have on, we have three females and, or, yeah, four, four females and one male. Right. And tell, and, and so it, it, I would assume this is just, this has a lot to do with either loneliness or just some, some contact. And you know, I have some friends in equine therapy and it's very much the same thing. People just want to, Get on the horse, ride the horse, play with the horse. And something to me sounds like this is a a little akin to that in terms of uh, this is a place where someone can just share basic feelings. Is that, is that, is that what's going on here, Kira? Absolutely. I mean, what it comes down to is we all want to feel loved. And so, 
um, these people have come to acknowledge that they are missing that in their life some way or another, and so they come to us just to feel loved and accepted in life. Well, that's great. And that's what we hold place for them. Tell us this, your best story, you got about a minute, your best story is a professional cuddler. Let's hear it. Ooh. Um... Uh, so let's see, um, two, one, I've walked into a place and this guy had just found out that he had been diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And before we even went into the room, he said, you are my hero. Thank you so much. And the other one was, I had a young woman who was, um, a stripper and had, and was in that mode of life because she had had a lot of, um, family disruptions in the beginning and um and by the time she left she said she could see how she was perfect and that everyone else was and that it was all going to be okay well kira this is what i'd love to do when i'm out in your neck of the woods i want to come over and i want to be cuddled a and b i want to cuddle i want to see what this looks like (laughs) and and you know my guys here are, are, are sort of laughing but I'm I'm serious. I'm going to come over because I'm act. I think you're actually onto something. And when you said the word love the way you did, and I I can tell you this, I see a lot of loneliness in the world, Kira, right now. I don't think Facebook brings people closer together. I think it brings them further apart. So on and so forth. So uh, what I'd love yeah. to do is take you on. Uh, let's stay in touch. When I'm in your neck of the woods, um, I say uh, a I want to be a customer, and then b I want to see what it's like to actually be on the other side taking care of somebody, one or two people. I'm not sure I can cuddle a guy, though, Kira, and I'm, not, I'm just not sure about that, um, but I'm going to try. Maybe I have to try. Well, you're and... welcome anytime, and we have over 50 different poses to sh- introduce you to. Do, so. I have, do I have to practice up? Do I have to study? Is there anything I need to know, Kira? Like, uh, do I have to do some yoga <laughs> first, or do I just come in and just no. give it a wing? No, we accept everybody exactly where they are. Oh, I love that. Kira Kettles, thank you so much for joining us. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And we try to cover it all. And we saw this story in the Wall Street Journal. And we were just curious. And when we come back, a little bit more serious side. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now we turn to Carl Zinsmeister's weekly segment that we call Sweet Charity. And it's brought to us by the folks at Philanthropy Roundtable. And you can read so much of their great material at the Almanac of American Philanthropy. And we love to talk about the generosity of this great country. And nobody does it better than the Philanthropy Roundtable. 
And so here, here is Carl Zinsmeister with his latest installment of our weekly segment, Sweet Charity. Many of you will remember the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. The ALS Association is the charity set up to fight Lou Gehrig's disease, and their fundraising gimmick to raise money for the cause went wildly viral a couple years ago. People would challenge their friends on Facebook or other social media to donate to the cause within 24 hours, or else you had to dump a bucket of ice water over your head. Most people ended up doing both. Here is the soundtrack from the video that President George W. Bush posted to YouTube after he was challenged. I've been challenged by uh, several Americans to uh, bring awareness to the ALS campaign. To you all who challenged me, I do not think it's presidential uh, for me to be splashed with ice water, so I'm simply going to write you a check. At this point, just as President Bush is scratching his signature across a check, a very familiar woman, looking elegant in pink, tiptoes into the shot, brandishing a white pail above her head. That check is for me. I don't want to ruin my hairstyle. Uh, Now it's my privilege to challenge uh, my friend Bill Clinton uh, to the ALS challenge. Uh, Yesterday was Bill's birthday, and my gift to Bill is a bucket of cold water. Uh, For those of you interested in more information, please look up ALSA.org. Every participant put his or her own twist on the donation challenge. Here is the YouTube recording of Charlie Sheen's contribution. Hey, everybody. Charlie Sheen here with the ice bucket challenge. All right. Here we go. Oh, wait. That's not ice. That's $10,000 in cash, which I am donating to the ALS Foundation. Because, let's face it, ice is going to melt, but this money is going to actually help people. So, I am hereby calling out John Cryer, Chuck Lorre, and Ashton Kutcher to identically do what I just did. Come on, guys. It's for a great cause. Obviously, Americans had some fun with this. And guess what? That annoyed some experts and journalists. More dour do-gooders described this as nothing but a wet t-shirt contest for vain and shallow people. Environmentalists argued it was a waste of drinking water. A slate writer asserted that, quote, a lot of the participants are probably spending more money on bagged ice than on ALS research. Ezekiel Emanuel, a medical academic and brother of President Obama's first chief of staff, predictably argued that taming disease is much too important and serious a task to be taken on by charity, amateurs, and everyday citizens. This was a job for the government. Emanuel insisted in a television interview that philanthropy, quote, is very unlikely to be transformative. We need to put this in a much larger context. The National Institutes of Health funds a lot of basic research in this country, over $30 billion per year. So this is really very unlikely to be transformative. A similar attack was made by Congressman John Dingell, who expressed skepticism about the value of direct citizen action. What these critics didn't acknowledge is that government medical research funders, for all their value, are very bureaucratic. They're not particularly inventive. They feel that they have to spread their resources across many special interests, and they can't do everything. Indeed, I looked up how much money the federal NIH put into research on ALS in 2014 when the Ice Bucket Challenge was created. The answer? $40 million. Well, 
Guess how much money this silly private fundraising effort by ordinary Americans raised for ALS that same year? Try $115 million. And a lot more than that, by the way, in follow-up contributions once people had been made aware of the need. The Ice Bucket Challenge has become an annual fundraiser for the ALS Association. Every August, you can expect to hear the ice cubes start clinking again. And there's an even more wonderful twist to this story. You know, when you're taking on a medical problem, it isn't just the amount of money that matters. It's also how flexibly and intelligently you let scientists make use of the funds. One of the serious problems with federal funding is that it comes with so much red tape that the scientists who win grants are often limited in what they can accomplish with the money. And because the government boards that dole out the funds are so timid and risk-averse, more unconventional scientists, who sometimes make the biggest breakthroughs, often never get funded at all. In The Almanac of American Philanthropy, I quote directors of many of our nation's top science labs explaining why donated funds are so hugely valuable to them. They cite the willingness of donors to try new things, even if it sometimes means failing, the lack of attached strings, the patience and longer time horizon of philanthropy. Those are the reasons that when lab heads describe to me the private gifts they get for science research, they use words like these, enormously valuable, able to take risks, flexible, not decided by committee, money that lets you push the frontiers, gold, and magic. Which brings us back to our story about Lou Gehrig's disease. A significant chunk of that $115 million that the ALS Foundation raised through the Ice Bucket Challenge was quickly shipped off to researchers at Johns Hopkins University. And within a year, those donations were paying huge dividends. The team at Hopkins announced a major breakthrough earlier this year in understanding the cause of ALS. Not only that, but they reported that the expensive clinical trials needed to translate this new finding into possible life-saving therapies were already paid for and on a fast track to patients thanks to the gush of money donated by ice bucketeers. As he made this dramatic announcement, scientist Jonathan Ling offered a personal statement. He said, quote, I've been reading a lot of stories about people complaining that the ice bucket challenge was a waste and that scientists weren't using the money to do research and so forth. I assure you, this is absolutely false. Dr. Ling then pointed out that the surge of donated money has allowed his lab to conduct high-risk, high-reward experiments that may have opened an entirely new path to beating this disease, which today is slowly suffocating about 30,000 people. So the next time some smarty pants tells you that charity can't fix the big problems, that only government has that power, that little people should leave tough issues to the experts, you just smile and then dump a bucket of ice water over their heads. And there you have it, another great installment of Sweet Charity. And that's Carl Zinsmeister. And it's the Philanthropy Roundtable that brings us this great material. And if you want to read all of these stories and so many more, the Almanac of American Philanthropy is where you can find some of the best stories about American generosity and sweet charity. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. To hear all of our material, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. He
along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel I stole a kiss at the turn of a mile My curiosity running wild Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go This is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories If you're looking for angry political talk You'll want to turn the dial here at Our American Stories, we tell stories and only stories. And every once in a while about public policy when it hits the pavement, when it affects you and your story. And that's what we're doing here with the Dodd-Frank regulatory overhaul that became law after the recent economic crisis. Dodd-Frank didn't just regulate Wall Street and the Fortune 500, but Main Street too. And today, we bring you such a story from our field correspondent, Alex Cortez, who spoke to someone who insisted that he be anonymous. Anonymous because he's afraid of retribution from his own government. Here's Alex. While you're worried about whether your new ride, that eight-cylinder racing stripe Mustang, looks best in red or gunmetal gray, your car dealer is worried about, well, something else. They would tell the dealerships, hey, you guys don't worry about what the nationality is, but then when they audit you, they say, well, all these names here are this certain nationality, and you've charged them all more than these names here, the Smiths. The Smiths have a lower rate than the X name, and that's a problem, but that's one concern that we have as a dealership. It's like, well, do we not sell to certain names? We're scared now. You know, we're not supposed to worry about nationality. That's Danny, the anonymous general manager of a car dealership who wouldn't let us use his last name. And why is he so worried about your last name? It's an issue that isn't getting much attention in the media, which is why we're bringing it to you. According to the CFPB, certain lenders that offer auto loans through dealerships are responsible for unlawful discriminatory pricing. Unlawful discriminatory pricing sounds ominous and illegal, like something straight out of a past era, like the Jim Crow era, but it's something new, something created by Dodd-Frank's enforcer, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the CFPB. The law explicitly said they couldn't regulate car dealerships, and yet they are, and through a loophole so small you could barely drive a Mini Cooper through it. They figured out they could throttle the dealerships through throttling the lenders who make the financing of your new ride possible. With their regulatory destination set in the GPS, the CFPB set out to conduct a study about racial discrimination in auto lending. A study that didn't find some races being charged higher interest rates. A study that didn't find some nationalities being charged higher interest rates. Well, what did it find? That some last names were being charged just a little bit more a month. That's right, last names? Here's Wall Street Journal columnist Holman Jenkins Jr. Consumer Finance Protection Agency has to basically gin up its own estimates so it uses last names and zip codes to assign uh, racial classifications to people. Who knows how accurate this is? This is There's no peer review of this, and yet they find these tiny marginal differences, which come out to like 10 cents or 30 cents a month on, the, on a 66-month car loan. 
So the hot rodding regulators over at the CFPB took the last names of borrowers and their zip codes, and then they guessed whether or not they were a minority. So a guy named Williams in Queens was assumed to be black, but a guy named Williams in Malibu was assumed to be white. Talk about racist. This is their version of an educated guess, just not very educated. Bureaucrats in search of a problem that's not very problematic. We're talking about 10 to 30 cents a month, if there's even 10 to 30 cents of truth in it at all. Let's keep in mind, the CFPB never determined there was any actual and intentional discrimination, which is important to the rule of law, or at least it used to be. Laws exist. Um, that deal and make and prohibit uh, overt intentional discrimination. Nobody is alleging that here. That's not what the CFPB is looking at. But down comes their hammer anyway. And the lenders just settle with the CFPB to get the lawsuit off their table, even if they know they're innocent. In December of 2013, the CFPB fined Ally Bank a combined $98 million as part of a settlement. And then it happened again. A federal investigation has been opened now against the American Honda Finance Corporation. Honda's financial services branch will pay out $24 million after accusations of racial discrimination. The government says Honda was overcharging customers for being black, Hispanic, and Asian. One such lender sent the CFPB letter they got to Danny, which is exactly what the CFPB wanted. As the banks, you know, put forth the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau letter in, in front of us and say, hey, you know, you got to comply with what we got to comply with. You know, and it's like we're not a bank. And threatening lenders and dealerships over last names is only half of what the CFPB is doing. But first, a little background on how the dealership business works. Now, as Danny would tell you, there are two things which affect what you pay for that new muscle car the sticker price and the price of the loan you get to buy the car. And to earn your business, dealerships want to be that one-stop shop, so they partner with lenders to offer you the best total package. We don't want a customer to come into the dealership and say, hey, I want this car, that's the price, great. Then they got to go out and search for 10 different finance companies to get financing. It just gives the customer a more convenient way to get their financing on the vehicle either through a manufacturing lender or a local lender that is hooked up with the dealership. It's easier for the customer, save them time, and obviously saves them money in most cases because they don't have to spend their time out looking for, you know, financing. You know, a lot of people take time off of work to to make a second largest, you know, biggest investment in in their lifetime, which is a car. And it does, it saves them time and money. Because of the volume of business that a dealership does, they can often get you better rates than the folks off the street, and much more quickly. In 10 minutes, the dealer can put together 35 different offers, way more than the customer can get in a month, let alone a Saturday. And of course, this service isn't free for the dealership, and the dealership takes a small cut. It's called a dealer's reserve, and it's important. I mean, that's how they keep their doors open that's how they pay for the coffee that's how they pay for the electricity how they pay for their land you know all that stuff so back in the 70s and early 80s they they had a spread we call it so hypothetically if the bank gave the dealership a 15 percent buy rate and it seems kind of high but back then it was high so roughly 15 percent interest rate the dealer would turn around and sell it for hypothetically 18 percent 
So that three-point spread would allow the dealer to gain some reserve from the lender profit in, in their finance reserve to help for their subsistence. So it really does help the dealerships to stay in business. That 1-3% to dealer reserve can provide as much as 20% of the total profit for a dealership. And it's just as important for us consumers as it is to the dealers. That's because if they need to beat another dealership's offer, but they've come down on the rock bottom of the sticker price of the car, they can still take a percent off of the reserve, which makes the overall cost of the car lower to us. And that can be a deal maker for a purchase. So how does the CFPB fit in all this? Kind of like a third wheel on a motorcycle. In a compliance guidance bulletin, it simply told lenders they could avoid unintentional discrimination by taking one of two steps. One, eliminate dealer discretion and move to a flat fee. Or two, impose a series of controls on dealer discretion that are unworkable, virtually forcing the change to a flat fee system. The CFPB solution would have finance sources compensate dealers with flat fees, mandatory flat fees, which means dealers would have no discretion to cut into the retail margin to earn consumers' business. That was Paul Metre, the Chief Regulatory Counsel for the National Automobile Dealers Association. The CFPB is proposing the flat fee so that there's no room for this problem of discrimination that they haven't proven to exist. This flat fee could be as low as $100, but if you're thinking that's a good thing, just put on the brakes a little bit. That's a substantial amount of cutting into the dealer's profit. You know, contrary to popular belief, people think that, wow, these dealers make big money, this and that, blah, blah, blah. Whereas a dealership, net-net, at the end of the month, barely make a single digit of profit in most cases. More burdens could equal fewer dealers, and fewer dealers could equal fewer choices and higher prices. A future we might get stuck with whether dealers stay in business or not. It will affect, you know, the dealer profit. So if the customer comes in and, you know, all of a sudden the dealership cannot profit from dealer reserve, obviously it's going to hinder the dealership to discount the front price of the vehicle, the, the actual pricing of the vehicle. So the next time you go to that dealership, you might be negotiating not only with them. Uncle Sam may be at the table, laying down terms of his own and checking out your last name. For our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. This is Lee Habib. Great job on that, Alex. And as always, great storytelling. Dodd-Frank, its impact on auto dealers... It's impact on all of us. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and this month we're celebrating National Adoption Month. And we'll be bringing you adoption stories throughout the course of November. And today, we want to introduce you to the Willoughby family. They had three kids of their own, and the last one was about to graduate high school. And then they adopted seven more from China. They have shared their story in order to spread awareness about adoption and to encourage others to adopt as well. Virgil and Cindy Willoughby live in Elizabethtown, Kentucky, and they join us now. Before we get into the adoption story, I want to hear about each of you individually, and I want to start, Cindy, with you first. Where did you grow up? And tell us a little bit about your parents and the values uh, that they raised you with. Talk about that if you could. I grew up in Coleman, Alabama, just a small town, halfway between Birmingham and Huntsville, and uh, um, just was raised in a very close-knit family, all my extended family. On my mom's side, lived within about a mile of us. So I grew up, everything kind of centered around family. I have two brothers, and uh, my parents were just very involved in our lives. And I never knew a day that I didn't feel loved as a child. I had a great childhood. I was very blessed, uh, and I realized I was very blessed with that. It's a good thing to know you're blessed. I mean, some people are blessed, and they don't know it, and that's really terrible. Yes, it is. It is the same. Yes. And uh, and so you you spend your time there. And, and when when do you leave home? Do you do you go away at some point in time? Um, talk about that next phase of your life, going from childhood to adulthood. Before we bring in uh, okay. Virgil and talk a little bit about his life, and then how you met. Okay. Oh, I actually when we met would be when I left home. So I I got married right out of high school. And uh, um, so my story kind of intertwines with Virgil's almost immediately. But so, like I said, I, my childhood was just uh, a very close-knit community. And uh, um, and then I, I met Virgil and fell in love, and then I left him. And, and did you leave town with Virgil, or did you leave town to go off to college? Talk about that, that next step in your life, and then we're going to bring in Virgil. Okay. No, actually, um, I chose not to go to college. I, I just wanted to be married and uh, be Virgil's wife and spend my life with him. And so college was just not something that I felt uh, I wanted to do. And so um, after we got married, he was, in, we were, he was in the military. And so I moved uh, to uh, where he was stationed at that point, which was Savannah, Georgia. And uh, um so that was, uh, and actually, I, I, I guess I'll kind of jump ahead because I'll just say we, we met on a blind date, and uh, um, that was over 34 years ago. So it's uh, we were one of those blind dates that worked out. <laughs> and, and, so, well and so many of them are so painful. I'm glad this one did turn turn for the better for you. And Virgil, <laughs> tell me a little bit about, yeah. uh, obviously, your, your family and your early life before you met your bride early in your life, which can be a very lucky circumstance for people to find love early and to start a family early. Sure. Talk about that, Virgil. Sure. Uh, I was raised here in the state of Kentucky. Uh, very traditional um, parents. Uh, my dad worked construction. My mom was a stay-at-home mother. And uh, very fortunate, I was the baby of three boys. And uh, at the ripe old age of nine, my parents brought in a baby girl. And... Uh, 
uh, when I say brought in, and that was uh, a natural-born child. However, uh, the attention went from, from me to little sister. But again, uh, being uh, the, the age difference, obviously, I was doted on by, by two brothers, a mom and dad, and uh, kind of like what Cindy said, very blessed uh, in the aspect of being raised in a Christian home. And uh, just there's uh, unconditional love in our home. And I uh, was just, uh, again, very, very blessed. My dad worked construction from the time I was big enough to hold a hammer. I worked with my dad, as did my brothers. And I knew that that was not really the life for me. So uh, I knew at 13 years of age I wanted to be a police officer. I thought, let's go in the Army at 18 uh, and get out. Uh, after three years, I'd be 21. Come back to my hometown here in Elizabethtown and, and serve. But I met Cindy, uh, as she mentioned, on a blind date, uh, and that was in uh, 1982. We dated for about 15, 16 months, and right out of high school, uh, she was 18, I was 20, and, and we married. And uh, it's, uh, again, looking back uh, over these uh, 33 years of marriage, uh, just how God has intertwined our, our lives together, as well as our 10 children. And uh, Virgil, you served in the military. What branch, what did you learn in that service? How long did you serve? Uh, talk to us about that. you got uh, about a minute right here. Sure. Uh, uh, I was, uh, again, uh, 18. I joined the Army for three years as an infantry, uh, as an infantry guy. It just so happened that uh, uh, I, I served uh, the first 12 years in the state of Georgia, seven of that first ranger battalion in savannah georgia as a mountain phase ranger instructor in dahlonega georgia and then uh, uh fort campbell alaska and then the last year i was in here at fort knox before i retired uh, in my hometown so I, I was fortunate to be able to serve for 20 years and uh, it just so happened uh, hired as a police officer uh, before i actually retired from the army so uh I didn't have a lapse in, in in the two careers. And we find this so often is the case, Virgil. So many of the men in our, our police forces of America had served in the armed forces, and the idea of putting on a suit and tie or doing anything else but serving and protecting, it's just in your bloodstream, and, and that's what happens. And when we come back after the break, we're going to learn about the family building of the Willoughbys, what happened next, boy meets girl in high school, Goes off, serves in the military, the wife follows, they start raising a family, and then something magical happens on top of that. They discover the miracle of adoption and the love of a stranger. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, the story of the Willoughby family, when we continue. Our American Stories, National Adoption Month. We're celebrating it all month long. 
the remarkable things people do with their lives, reaching out and helping complete strangers and bringing them into their lives, treating them as family, becoming family. Just beautiful. We don't hear enough beautiful storytelling in this country. It's always just, well, it's angry and it's yelling and it's screaming. And we don't do that here on Our American Stories. And we're rejoined by the Willoughby family. And when we left off, I had asked Virgil a question about his service. And one of the things I did, I always like to ask and did sort of hint around Virgil was, what, what did you learn in, in that time in the military? And what would you tell parents right now who are listening to a child thinking about joining the Army or the Marine Corps or the Navy or whatever branch uh, to serve their country? Talk about the, some of the things you learned and the career that you had uh, in the Army. Sure. Um, probably the biggest thing uh, is just service in and of itself. Um, there's an acronym uh, that, that the Army used when, when I was in, which was actually leadership, uh, L-D-R-S-H-I-P, loyalty, duty, respect, uh, selfless service, honor, integrity, and personal courage. Now, all those characteristics uh, are, are blended uh, in so many different ways uh, based upon the job you do. And truly, when, when I left uh, the Army uh, joining the, uh, the police force, I really thought a lot of those same characteristics would, would carry over, which they have. And, um, but there is nothing like serving. And uh, so, uh, I, mean, I, I just look at Christ. Christ came uh, to this earth to serve. And again, it, it just the paramount, uh, the the relationship, and in 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 just serving, and that that can be in the military, it can be uh, with the police. It's actually any any career. To be quite honest, to be successful, uh, we have to serve, and that's even in our families and how that's carried over. Uh, into our family, and Cindy is probably the best servant uh, that I've ever met, and I am very blessed. Uh, I tell people this, not tongue-in-cheek, but that I am married to my hero because Cindy is the most selfless person that I know. So uh, we think about, again, in, in the military and all the other uh, careers that are out there where we have the opportunity to serve, but to be able to serve, uh, again, be able to serve the Lord, be able to serve your wife, to serve your children, and then to have a partner in this life that that serves me as well. Uh, I'm blessed beyond measure, truly. Yeah, you, you sure are. And one of the things I also wanted to ask you is, and I think this is a, uh, a remarkable time in the past decade when our soldiers came back from Iraq and Afghanistan, though there was a lot of disagreement about those wars inside America, unlike Vietnam, where the soldiers got treated poorly. I think they have truly, the country truly has understood uh, the service nature of the mission of our soldiers and have appreciated and I think paid great respect to our nation's soldiers this time around. But I've found that, and tell me if you are of the inclination, that our nation's officers are not finding that same respect. And and talk a little about that before we go over to that, that great servant's heart of your wife and talk a bit more about her as we get to the adoption phase of your story. Sure. Oh, uh, Mr. Aviv, uh, as you mentioned, uh, as you look across uh, our country as far as what's going on with uh, with our police officers, I mean, uh, in some regards, one uh, one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. And yes, we, do we have uh, police officers out there making mistakes? Absolutely. Um, but I think uh, you can't uh, you can't take an isolated incident 
uh, where uh, a particular officer has done something wrong and then grouped everybody together. Um, I wear a uniform, uh, so yes, I'm a police officer. The best part about my job is the opportunity to go into schools and talk to children. And for children to understand, when they look at me in a uniform, that's the job I do. That's not who I am. And that's the way it is with most of our police officers, okay? These are uh, husbands and wives. These are servants trying trying uh, their best uh, to, to provide a, uh, the best quality service they can to their communities. And in so doing, I know even myself, uh, there's times that I might talk to a group of people and just by something that I said uh, to offend someone, not that I, I meant to by, by any means, but just um, the, uh, the conversation and, and how it went, just like whoever's listening uh, to this story, uh, how they might misconstrue something that's said. Uh, I mean, I just, again, I appreciate our police officers, and uh, I greatly appreciate uh, the Elizabethtown Police Department and the chief, uh, our police chief, Tracy Schuller. He is a true servant. He's a great leader, and he leads from the front. He, uh, he doesn't have to say anything, but you look at the life that he models and, and what he does for our community. It's very easy to see how much, uh, as far as he cares and the compassion he shows for each individual. And that's what it's about. It, it's caring. It's letting people know that they come first uh, to give that, op- give that person an opportunity to, to be able to speak and then to to be a good listener and not trying to fix everybody's problems, for the most part, just listening uh, to someone's story, kind of like what we're doing here. And just by them talking and being able to vent someone, for the most part, they can figure out what, what they need to do from that point. Right. And Cindy, you know, you, you married a soldier and now you're married to a, a police officer and your, your husband has talked about your servant heart and I, and I assume, because I know it's true of my wife, her services to our kids, to our church, to our family, and to the, to the neighborhood. And, and, and that's her service, and it's the most important service there is. And I think so often, particularly stay-at-home moms, are not proffered the proper respect in our country. Uh, talk about how quickly you guys started to form that family of yours and talk about the, the, the kids that you gave birth to and uh, how many you had and talk a bit bit about their lives and their personalities before we then get to the adoption story in the next segment. Okay. Uh, Well, I'll start by saying when I was a little girl, my my dream job was to be a stay-at-home mom. And I'm probably one of the few people that can say that they've been able to do their dream job uh, for so so many years. But um, when when we first got married, Virgin was in Range Battalion. They were gone all the time. And so even though we were young, we were blessed with enough wisdom to realize that we, we needed to spend as much time as we could together when he was off. And so we gave up uh, some of the, the things of the world uh, financial, financially just so that um, when he was home, I, I was in a way working. We could spend time together and we could just focus on family and building our marriage and then eventually uh, – a couple of years into our marriage, when our first son came, was born, um, we just we just focused on family life, and that was that was we were both in agreement. So we we're very uh, fortunate that we and very blessed that we both had the same mindset on that. I, I wanted to stay home, and he was supportive of that. Uh, we um, Zeb is our oldest. 
And uh, so I, I was uh, 20 when Zeb was born and 21 when Zach was born. So they're, they're pretty close together in age. And uh, um, then Emily came along six years later, and we uh, chose to homeschool the kids. So as of right now, I've been homeschooling, I think, about 24 years. <laughs> so the kids have been kind of the full-time job, and, and I love what I do for a living. And it tells you, you you are both on the cutting edge because homeschooling, when you probably started it, uh, was something that, well, you didn't probably have a lot of people even knew what you were talking about. And and now, my goodness, the number of Americans homeschooling their kids for religious reasons, for just straight practical reasons, yeah. because their kids have special needs, inner city moms who just want to keep their kids away from dangerous schools. It's become one of the great, uh, I think, national movements of our time that, People aren't talking about, but but kudos to you. And and that, how, did you enjoy that? What were the challenges for moms listening to that, uh, Cindy? Just about a minute. You know, what were the challenges and what were the rewards of homeschooling? Challenge would be just making sure that I was not letting anything fall through the cracks. That that they were getting a a very rounded education, and and it helped that I I used a program that kind of provided all the curriculum so that I I, I didn't let anything fall away. Uh, a huge benefit for us being in the military was the fact that every time we moved, we didn't have to start a new school system. And uh, so, you know, we could just take school with us. It helped that transition uh, so much. And uh, um, also just being able to have that really close relationship with the kids uh, is just, uh, it's, it was a precious gift that we had. And again, because we were so far away from the family, um, it, our, our bonds were just um just very tight because of that and and they were and they're close to each other also um the zach and emily are as well so it that's it was a huge benefit for us well when we come back more from the willoughby family and what a thing to say on our air we love to hear it my dream job was a stay-at-home mom and for the women who want that to be their dreams they should be proud of that and be able to say that with pride and we're glad to hear it on our airwaves this is lee habib this is our american stories Our American Stories, and this is National Adoption Month. As you know, listening to this show, we love to spend hours sometimes on all kinds of subjects. We're going to be spending an hour on patent on Veterans Day. We've spent hours on all kinds of luminaries, but we also spend hours what we consider the real luminaries of the country, just ordinary folks doing extraordinary things. Not famous people, not rich people, not people who built big businesses. And by the way, those people are a part of the American life too, but not enough And not often enough do we tell the stories of ordinary Americans doing extraordinary things. Who are they? Where are they from? Why do they do what they do? And rejoining us are Cindy and Virgil Willoughby and their adoption story, which we're about to get into. But before we do, we were talking during the break about this idea of a servant's heart. And as the kids were getting older, each of them was starting to leave the house. But the good news is each one of these kids had the same servant's hearts that both mom and dad did. 
Cindy, talk about each of the kids, Zeb, Zach, and Emily, and what they did and how they served and how they continue to serve. Okay, so Zeb is 31, and uh, Zeb served in the Air Force for five years. And uh, when he got out of the Air Force, and what he's still doing right now is he's a a fireman here in the the town that we live in. And uh, Zach is 30, and he went into the Army. He served... um, he served a tour of Iraq and Afghanistan. He was in for six years. And, and our daughter, Emily, who was our baby for many, many years, uh, is, she's 24, and she is a nurse at the local hospital here. So they, are, um, they do have servant hearts, and uh, just wanting to, to reach out and help other people is the desire that they all have. And a heart that they got from you both, and so much of this is animated, of course, by your faith. Uh, in the end, you have servants' hearts because it's commanded by you, um, by your faith, uh, to have such hearts. Uh, okay. So now the kids are getting older. They start to leave the nest. And, and Mom, you're out of a job, basically. <laughs> what happens next? Well, that's true. Uh, when, uh, when Emily was getting ready to graduate high school, um, she was in her, into, going into her senior year. When we, um, we were reading a devotion, we were reading, actually, a Max Lucado devotion, and uh, um, our normal routine was I would read it in the morning, and then when Virgil was ready right before he went to work, he would read it. The devotion that day was on uh, getting out of your comfort zone and start, stop sitting by the hearth and build a fire in your heart. And uh, so he gave some suggestions uh, for really living life. He said the goal is not to, to live long. The goal is to live. And some of the suggestions were like run for office, teach a Sunday school class, adopt. There were a few more other things. And so after Virgil had read it, I asked him, I said, did anything jump out at you about that devotion? He said, yeah, adoption did. And um, so I said, well, this is the same for me. And that was a Friday, and we were going away for a weekend. Actually, it was something we had really never done before, and it was Valentine weekend. So... Uh, that weekend, we took to just talk and pray about it, and by the time we come back home Sunday evening, uh, we were we were ready to start the process uh, to adopt. And you had never really discussed adoption before. This Max Licato, uh devotional, which you did separately, led you to the same conclusions without collaborating. Yes. Correct. Yes, and the Lord was really speaking uh, through that devotion to us both, and. Uh, so that gave us a, a real peace about it that we were, you know, the same thing speaking to both of us. So that was great. And 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 Virgil, you know, that had to really shock you as well. I mean, you know, you say that this thing adoption. There could have been a, a hundred thousand things you you could have chosen that that devotional could have called you to think about. Um, why, why and how did you come to that? And what was your reaction when your wife had the same exact intention? Um, it was, uh, in some regards, uh, very encouraging, uh, also, uh, a little anxiety for that matter, because we didn't know anyone that had adopted. But, uh, that particular morning, uh, when, when I left for work, it's like, you know, adoption. And it, it's like with so many things. I'm sure the Holy Spirit has impressed upon my heart, uh, many times to, to do X, Y, or Z. And for whatever reason, I said no, I was disobedient, and had no clue, had no clue where 
God was going to lead us uh, by saying yes. And again, uh, so that there, this story, how it kind of plays out, uh, you can look back on it and just kind of see how God has, has directed this path. And it has. I mean, it's been a great faith builder, uh, much encouragement to both Cindy and I, even to uh, our family, extended family, church family, and friends. And Cindy, you had a Cindy in your life who inspired you and led you down this road. Talk, Cindy, talk about your inspiration, or at least the person who led you down this road or helped lead you down this road. Cindy. Yes, there was a, and actually that was more with our, our second adoption um, that uh, that helped us try to decide whether we should or shouldn't adopt. And uh, she she was a lady that, uh, that actually Virgil had met, and so we got to know her that way, and uh, she was in the process of adopting, I think, her fourth or fifth special needs child from China. She was a single mom. She was older than us. And it was an encouragement to see um, this lady step out by faith and, and bring the children home. We, we also There was also a, another lady. Her, her name is Carla. And she really walked with us our first adoption. Uh, when we, we were close to, we were close to leaving for China when we were introduced to Carla. And she was just a, a great source of encouragement as far as kind of what to expect. Um, she wrote letters for us to read while we were in China, kind of the different phases. And then, you know, after we got back, um, she's continued to be a, a great friend and um, just a, a joy to walk with, you know, in, in our adoption process. She had also adopted from China. So there were two ladies that, that were put into our past, not, not originally, but... Uh, on into the process of adoption. And you've adopted how many kids in total? And talk about that very first adoption. And most important, Cindy, what were your kids' reactions to to this as well? Well, I'll start with the kids' reactions, I guess, first, because I will go in order here. But uh, when we told the boys, uh, they were great. They were excited. When we told Emily, uh, she was the only one still at home. And her first reaction was she didn't believe it. She just didn't think that it was just so, you know, out of the norm. And, um, it, like, again, we weren't around people, anybody that had really had adopted, especially international adoptions. And uh, so she was surprised. And uh, But once she saw us begin the paperwork, then she was excited. And uh, Emily actually traveled with us for the adoption. And um, she's um, she's just got a, a really special place, you know, with the girls and, of course, being the older sister, I know that helps too, but, um, but so, so the kids, they've been very, um, our adult kids, uh, are, are very loving. Our younger girls, all our adopted girls love their older siblings and it's always a big deal when we're all together and that's probably one of, well, it is, it's just our most favorite thing for, you know, all of us to be together sitting around the mill or whatever. It doesn't happen often because Zach lives, he and his family live in Iowa. So, but when, when they're home for a visit, there's just nothing sweeter to me than to hear all, all those kids' voices uh, together and all my grandkids' voices together. So, Well, when we come back, we're going to find out about these adopted kids, their names, some special stories, and what you would have to tell to our listeners who may be thinking about doing something like this something so daring and bold, but also something so beautiful. And when we come back, the Willoughby family 
for the hour, a great American story about love and about faith in the end, and the kind of faith stories you don't hear on secular radio very often, and the kind we need to hear much more often. More after these messages. For the hour, the Willoughby family, it's National Adoption Month. And my goodness, you're about to hear the adoption part of this adoption story. But we learned about their hearts, about their lives, Cindy and Virgil. Because, well, if you're out there listening and you're thinking about adopting, I think you've got to hear the full totality of the adoption story, which starts with the marriage. It starts with the existing family before you extend a family. Uh, You need to know a bit about the family that dives into these matters. And uh, we were talking during the break, and, and Virgil, I was going to ask him to, to walk us through this, and Virgil made it clear. He goes, look, I, I may be the resident cheerleader, and uh, I may be, you know, talking at a 30,000-foot level, but uh, Cindy's the one driving this bus. Uh, but Virgil, you, yeah. you made a point earlier of talking about, you know, what your wife does each day and, uh, and how she drives the ship. And talk a bit about that before we pass it back to Cindy to talk about this this complicated international adoption work. Oh, um, I've heard it said, and I think it's very true, that uh, God's not going to impress something on your heart, that he's not going to take you through it. And I just want to mention James 127, uh, from the NIV it reads, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And uh, I didn't know, I didn't know that scripture until after we'd adopted, and and that has uh, has rang true uh, for uh, for us. Uh, we do uh, want to look out for orphans the best we can, and and it, it even in my own life uh, was I corrupted by the world? Probably so. I was more concerned about my four hundred one k and retirement and things of that nature. But what I'll say about adoption uh, is that since we brought uh, our children home. Uh, it's taken my focus off me and put my focus on greater things. And so, you know, like I've been, been very fortunate in that aspect. And, and lucky to have a wife who, who, who executed on this stuff, Virgil. So, Cindy, to you now, for the, for the family, and particularly, I think, uh, very often the wives have to carry some of the burden, especially the women who are the stay-at-home moms. And I don't mean burden in a bad way. I just mean the work has to get done. Uh, talk people through this international adoption process. You've now adopted how many kids? Let folks know how many kids you've already adopted, where from, and the types of kids you've adopted, age, and everything else. Okay, we've adopted seven girls, all from China, different provinces. Um, We do have four of our girls, two from one province, two from another, but they were not even the same cities. And so just pretty much scattered from one end of China to the other is where the girls came from. 
Ellie came home in uh, 2010, and she at that that time she was six years old. Um, when we we had been home for just a short while, and um, just felt like the Lord was leading us to bring home another daughter, and so we started the paperwork again while we're waiting for this daughter who would be in Yali. Uh, we we got an email from uh, a lady advocating for a, a girl who was aging out of the system. And now when you age out in China, that means you turn 14. And on your 14th birthday, you can no longer be adopted. Um, so this this girl was aging out, and she had severe scoliosis, and, and needed she needed medical care. And more than that, she needed a family. So uh, we had not planned on bringing home two, but uh, that was Lord's plan all along. And so we did a, a mound of paperwork in a very short amount of time. And Ten weeks after we saw her picture for the first time, we were bringing her home. And we actually landed back in Louisville 15 minutes before she turned 14. So we, we brought home Inya and Xiaoyin in uh, May of 2011. Um, 2012 was spent with a lot of doctor's appointments. Xiaoyin spent a, year, uh, a month in Cosairs having four major spinal surgeries. Um and we have a, a lot of healing going on that year. The following year, 2013, in May of that year, we adopted Shimi and Nini, and they were both five at that time. And uh, and then in 2015, in September of 2015, we adopted Aaron, who uh, at that time was 12, and Maymay, who was six at that time. Amazing. Okay. And and several of the girls have disabilities. And Cindy, you, you said something interesting in the pre-interview. You said, quote, they say special needs, but they're just special, these kids. Everybody has needs. Somebody's needs may just be different than others. Some may be more obvious. Uh, talk about this uh, distinction in your mind, Cindy. Well, I've heard it. Somebody said, I don't even know where the quote is, but uh, or who, who gave, did the quote, but it said that they're not disabilities, they're different abilities. And and that is so true because um, one of our daughters, Nini, she had uh, untreated hydrocephalus. And, uh, and she um, had brain damage because the, she was never given the care that she needed. And she will always, she'll, she'll be with us forever, and, uh, and which is, is it's wonderful. And, but... Uh, so, but she has such a tender heart, such a considerate heart. And when someone is upset, she's the first one to get Kleenexes and try to comfort them. And I mean, she just has such a sweet spirit about her. And sometimes we get so focused on our our athletic abilities or our, the appearance or so many external things, and, and we're not looking at the heart. And uh, all of our girls were on the China special needs list, and. Um, so some were very, very minor needs, and some were quite a bit more extensive. But um, the needs the needs do not define our girls. Our girls are incredible. They are empathetic and they're, uh, because they've, they've suffered, and so they know and they, they really feel people's suffering and, and their pain. And uh, they're also so grateful for everything that they get um, that uh, it's it, it's just changed the way that I look at life. They have a, a zest for life and enthusiasm for life that I just never experienced. I took so much for granted before the girls came home. And uh, and they just um, 
just awakened something that I did not, you know, I didn't know that I was missing. Uh, but um, so when people see special needs or they see the special needs list, the, the words scare them. And, and I'll be the first to say a lot of the words scare me too, you know, when, I, when you look at them. But uh, when you break it down, uh, so many of the needs are really just not that big a deal. They're just kind of part of day-to-day life. And um, you, you learn how to advocate medically for your child, and, and then you just, you know, and then you just live life and enjoy it, and you don't, um, you don't stress about that, that term anymore because you don't even think about it. You just are focused on the child themselves and, and, and what a precious gift they are that, that God has given us. And Virgil, what advice, and I'm going to ask you both this to close out the hour, uh, what advice would you give to people looking to adopt or in the beginning stages of adoption, given that you've learned so much? Um, probably just keep the main thing the main thing. Uh, this is for the child. Uh, it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Uh, from start to finish for us, for, for each one of our children, has been anywhere from 12 to 14, 15 months. So uh, you're in this for the long haul. Be patient. Uh, again, just uh, continue to pray. Uh, continue, uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, the, uh, seek out someone who has who has walked this trail. Uh, I think we we as men, a lot of times, uh, we straighten our backs and it's like we've got this thing, in regards of what it is and yep. why. But uh, reach out, uh, look for someone that, that has walked this this path before, because. There's so much to be gleaned from someone who's been there, done that. And uh, keep in mind, we're at our age, we are technically grandparents raising our children. Uh, so, uh, like I said, little, little things, and I think Cindy alluded to it, uh, as, as young parents, things that, that we uh, let get in the way. Um, here, a good example would be, I want my children to act such and such because they're a direct, direct reflection of me. Uh, get get over yourself. I need to get over myself as a young parent. I'm just trying to survive, put food on the table. Uh, but truly, uh, get rid of your phones, get rid of your social media, spend time with your children wherever you're at. And it doesn't matter uh, where the where your children come from, biological or, or adopted, spend more time with your kids. That's great advice. And about a minute, Cindy, the same question to you, and, and particularly to the moms, um, advice uh, to them, if you could. Yeah, I, I agree with Virgil. Having someone or a group of people that uh, that you can connect with that have similar needs would be great. There's a, a website called No Hands But Ours. Uh, there's also one called RainbowKids.com that kind of give you a wealth of information, how to start the process, what all the words mean. But then it also will connect you with resources, whether a um, like a Facebook group or uh, someone that's blogging about their life, you know, dealing with special needs. Uh, you need to to be able to 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 know that there's others out there that are experiencing the same thing and be encouraged by that and be an encouragement to others. And uh, um, just, I mean. Really, prayer. Prayer is such a big thing. I mean, it is the thing you, you need the most to give you the strength and wisdom to to go through each day. And you need a group of people that will come alongside of you and love on you and love on your children. We have been very blessed to have had that with our family and friends, and everybody needs that. Well, everybody does need that. We all need the prayer. We need the family. And 
the servant's heart. I think that's what really we come away with from this hour. The Willoughby family, what a beautiful, beautiful story. Cindy and Virgil Willoughby doing God's work and doing the kind of work that more Americans need to hear about. And by the way, replicate. And if you're interested, again, that's rainbowkids.com, and that's Cindy's recommendation is a, is a great source. If you're thinking of adopting, do it. And as Virgil said, keep the main thing the main thing. I love that. This is Our American Stories. <laughs>